You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. We are in Judges chapter 4 today, so uh, you can open your Bibles or your device, whatever you are using to track uh, with us in the Scripture in Judges chapter 4. And uh, this is the third cycle, so to speak, of the Judges, the third cycle where today we are looking at Deborah and Barak. And uh, this will be a two sort of a two-part sermon because the Deborah and Barak story is written in two chapters. So chapter four just tells us what happens. It's a lot of battle and stuff, prep for battle, battle, that kind of stuff. Chapter four tells us what happens. Chapter five uh, is going to be a song. It's called the Song of Deborah and Barak. So it's a victory song, uh, and we'll study that next week. So they're both about the same event. Chapter four is narrative, prose, Chapter 5 is poetry, and uh, so we'll look at that next week. If you're an NFL football fan and you're already missing it, a way I could put it that would be relatable is that chapter 4 is play-by-play. It's the play-by-play announcer telling us what's happening on the field. Chapter 5 is the color commentary where the guy draws on the screen and says, this is what was going on in the background, and this is why that happened, and all that kind of stuff. So that's what we'll do. Chapter 4 and 5 today, we will just look at the play-by-play. So I'm going to read it in sections. at a time and talk about it and then come back for some application at the end. So we'll start with verses 1 through 3. Uh, Judges 1 through 3. This is God's holy word. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now, if you've been tracking with us in this series, watching online or here, uh, then you know that what we just read sounds very familiar yea, identical to what we've been reading in the previous weeks, because every story in Judges generally falls along a a pattern, a cycle. So if we could put that cycle slide, oh, you already did, there it is. Uh, So this is the cycle that we see. Uh, It said Ehud died, well, Ehud had delivered them, and they had had, uh, verse uh, 30 of chapter 3 says they had had rest for 80 years. So for 80 years, there's peace. There's uh, a lack of, you know, wholesale idolatry. They're generally serving the Lord, evidently, but there is a peace. And then after he dies, we read verse 1 of chapter 4, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And whenever we read that, <clears throat> did what was evil in the book of Judges, it is sort of code for idolatry. Because back in chapter 2, Verse 11, when the author is laying out this pattern, chapter 2 describes this pattern, and then he tells us historically how it happens throughout the rest of the book. 
But chapter 2, verse 11 says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. That is, they worshiped and served the gods of the Canaanites where they were. So we see the cycle. They had served the Lord for 80 years. Then the, uh, the judge Ehud dies. And then they fall into sin and idolatry, verse number 1. Then Israel is oppressed. That's the exact language that's used here uh, where it says in verse 3, that the people of Israel, that they were, that um, the the uh, Jabin, the king of Canaan, that he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for twenty years. So they uh, they are oppressed by a foreign ruler that rules over them, and this was serious. As we go along, we'll see that things get worse and worse in the book of Judges. And here, it's not just he oppressed them, but it says that he cruelly oppressed them for 20 years. One scholar translates it, he vehemently, he vehemently tormented the sons of Israel for 20 years. Tormented them. It is uh, really uh, terrible the way he ruled over them. Now, the rest of the chapter is going to describe the raising of uh, several people that take judge-like roles, and it's going to describe the battle and the overthrow of Jabin. So, We just read that they cried out to the Lord. Then the people, verse 3, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. So we see we're down at 6 o'clock now. We see the first half of the cycle, and then God raises up a judge. That's what's going to happen next. So let's read verses 4 through 11. Uh, This describes the preparation for battle, preparation for battle. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun? And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with the chariots and his, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went with him. Verse 11, now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zayanamim which is near Kedesh, which is near Kedesh. Okay, so they've turned away from the Lord. They cry out to the Lord. And the first person we meet in the passage here is Deborah. And she is described as a prophetess. That is, she brings the word of the Lord to people. And so she has her own palm. She sets up at the palm of Deborah, which is really cool to have a palm named after you in the Bible. And that's her spot. And the people of God would come to her uh, and she's functioning. It says that she would judge. Now, This is not the kind of judging that we see normally in the book of Judges when it says there's a judge. The judges in Israel 
throughout the book are military leaders that God raises up to free the people uh, from the oppression that they are under. But here, she's judging in a different way. She is uh, bringing counsel and help to the people of God who come and meet her. So evidently, this is her prophetic gift. God gives her wisdom. Uh, God gives her his word, and people come with challenges. They want counsel. They want to perhaps solve a dispute or whatever it is. And she's out there and providing help for them. So she's not a typical deliverer in a military sense. She's functioning as as a prophetess who brings wisdom to the people of God. Now, as a prophet or prophetess, what she does is she also mediates the word of God, and in this case, the calling of God to Barak. So Barak is a military leader. He, uh, he does function in that way. And what she does is she says to him, uh, she summons him in verse 6, And she says to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 of them? So this is a commission. Isn't God telling you this? Go get 10,000 men to follow you. Go to Mount Tabor. And then it's not only a commissioning, but she gives him a prophetic promise. She says this, verse 7, this is the Lord speaking, I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. So she's going to Barak and she's saying, listen, God's calling upon you is this, to go deliver his people and to go to this location. Uh, uh, Sisera is coming out and God will give him into your hand. So it's a commissioning and it's a promise from God that she gives him. Now, his response, uh, it's interesting, and it's read in a couple of different ways. His response is, verse 8, I will go if you will go with me, but if you will not go, I will not go. And then her response is, I will surely go. Nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. So there's This is typically read in two ways. The minority reading is that this is really a positive statement, that basically he is saying, like when Israel says in Exodus, we will not go if the presence of God will not go with us. So in that sense, he's saying, without a prophet bringing the word of the Lord to me, I will not go. And so some say, well, that's kind of a positive, it's a very positive thing. And when she gives that statement about you know, you're going to be, uh, Cicero will be handed over to a woman, that that's just a prophetic statement of fact. That's all it is. The more common reading, and this is the way I read it, uh, is a negative statement about Barak because his response to the command of God and the promise of God is conditional. The command of God is go get 10,000 men. The promise of God is you will defeat the military leader who has 900 chariots at his disposal. I'm going to do a miracle through you to free my people. And he says, maybe I will, maybe I won't. If you will go with me, Deborah, I will. If you won't go, I won't. So he's actually willing to to disobey the command and disregard the promise of God if Deborah will not come with him. And I think what she does here is gives him a mild rebuke, or maybe more than a mild rebuke, by saying to him, look, um, I will go with you since you're requesting that. It wouldn't be typical for a woman to go into a battle, but I will go with you. However, uh, you will not get the glory or the honor of personally you know, uh, defeating Sisera, the 
commander of Jabin's army. So you'll win the battle, but Sisera, the commander, he's going to go to a woman who will get him. And we presume at this point in the story, that must be Deborah. She's going to show up, and she is going to take care of Sisera. Now, that's a really big deal that a woman would get the glory for killing uh, this uh, powerful military general, Sisera. And it's amazing because in a patriarchal society like theirs, nothing like that would ever happen. And this is a culture that is sort of more of a shame and honor culture. So to lose honor as a military leader is a significant thing. And in a patriarchal society, it would be, uh, you know, it would be less honorable for the male leader of the army to not kill the other male leader, but to have a woman do that instead. So it seems to me like he is being adjusted, corrected. Uh, the promise still stands he'll win the battle, but he won't kind of get the trophy Uh, at the end is what God's saying. At the end of the day, I don't think we have to judge whether Barak had a lot of faith or no faith because the reality is Barak is probably like all of us. Uh, We hear the command of God and we sort of want some human assurances that everything's going to be okay. We hear the command of God to give freely and we're kind of like, well, yeah, I'll be glad to give freely when I have a little bit more cushion and I feel safer doing that. Uh, We hear the command of God to share our faith and we think, well, like here's the reasons. Like if someone else will, I'll support someone else in sharing the faith, you know? So we always want a little bit of human assurance. Ultimately, he does follow the Lord, and he does. He's, it's very respectable. He's actually mentioned in the New Testament in Hebrews. He's honored because he does go to battle. He goes on a suicide mission, taking 10,000 voluntary foot soldiers into battle against a trained army with 900 chariots. This, this changes everything. The chariot Versus foot soldiers, it would cut through foot soldiers like hot, like a hot knife through butter, just cutting through them. They had a distinct technological and power advantage at war, and yet he goes into that, what would be, humanly speaking, a suicide mission, confident that God will help him. Now, at the end of the section, as they're preparing for battle, we get this out of place, what reads like an out of place verse, verse 11. It tells us about a guy named Heber the Kenite. And Heber the Kenite is a guy who, he's a descendant. The Kenites are descendant from Moses' father-in-law. So they have a relationship with Israel. They're friends of Israel. But this guy, the Kenites are, this guy Heber, he separates from the Kenites and he goes and sets up his tent. He goes and lives, in other words, out there near Kedesh. Now that is where they're headed. They're headed to Kenesh. So what we get is we get preparing for battle and then we get this random, what seems like this random statement about some dude, Heber, who goes out, he's a, he, he's a traitor to Israel. He becomes evidently a friend of Canaan because he leaves his people who are friends of Israel and goes and sets up near Kedesh. So we file that one away because that will matter in a minute. So that's the preparation for the battle that we see. Here's the battle itself reading from verse 12 to verse 16. When Sisera had, was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera 
and all the chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army so to Harasheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. So evidently, Sisera gets intel that, uh, that Barak and his 10,000 soldiers are on top of Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor is shaped like an upside-down bowl. And so getting that intel, he's like, well, we can trap them there. So he takes all his chariots and says, we're going to go to battle. If the chariots surrounded the mount, they would be trapped. The soldiers come down. They have no place to go. Uh, so it's a great strategy uh, on Sisera's part. But Deborah says, now's the time, so go. Leave Mount Tabor and move down, and you'll catch them in the valley near the river Kishon. Now, we don't know, did the Lord tell her that? Did they have their own tell, intel? We don't know. But she gives the command, perhaps it was from the Lord, do this now and he responds and they go down and then we really get no details of what happens in the battle we just find out verse 15 tells us that the lord routed sisera could also be translated confused so sisera and his 900 chariots are confused they're routed but there is a lot we don't know about what happens here right Like, what happened to the power of 900 chariots? How did they all of a sudden not provide victory? I mean, for 20 years, Israel is under the thumb of this guy Jabin. We read at the beginning because he's got 900 chariots and a professional army. So they're under his thumb, but now they're not anymore. All of a sudden, the chariots don't provide what they hoped it would provide. Why, and here's a big one, why does Sisera the general, get off his chariot and run on foot. What's up with that? Why would you get out of your, it's like being in a tank and getting out of your tank and say, I'll take my chances on foot. Why would you ever do that? So he, he runs off. We don't know why that happens. You have to wait till chapter five so you can come back next week and find out in the poem why it happens or You can read your Bible on your own this week and find out. But we'll find out next week what happens at the battle. There's a brief reference to it at any rate. So we find out in verse 16, no one survives and Sisera is off running on foot. Okay, here's the final victory, verses 17 through 24. But as Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite... Remember him? For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent, and if, a man come, if any man comes and asks you, is anyone in there? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, 
God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Of Canaan. So now, now we know, starting in verse 17, why we found out about Heber, that he was near Kedesh earlier, because he is a friend. He's made an alliance with Jabin, the king. So Sisera is on foot. He knows that, and he knows that if I can make it there, that will be a safe house for me, or a safe tent, as the case may be, and I'll be protected. So he runs to the area where um, where Heber lives. Heber's not home, evidently, but his wife, Jael, is, and she invites him in. I love the language. Turn aside, my Lord. Turn aside. Do not be afraid. So she's luring him into her tent. And uh, so he goes in, and he thinks this is safe. He, he, uh, he, you know, she covers him up to protect him so he will be hidden. Uh, he then says he's thirsty, asks for water. Well, she gives him something more. She opens a skin of milk and gives him milk to drink. And then he gives her this, you know, this instruction. Look, if anybody comes to the tent door and says, is there a general hiding out in your tent? Tell them, no, there's no general hiding out in my tent so that they will go on. And she evidently agrees to do this. And then he, you know, he's laying down, he's exhausted, he falls asleep. What she does at that point is she gets the tools of her trade, a hammer and a tent peg. And I say tools of her trade because in this day, it was customary for women to set up and take down tents. I don't know if you camp, if you do that. If your family camps and you're a guy and your wife does all the setup and takedown, you're probably a happy camper. Uh, so, but that's how it worked back then. So she's probably better than her husband with a mallet and a tent peg. And so she quietly goes up to Sisera and she pounds it into his temple. It goes all the way through. We get this detail. I'm telling you the word of God. Pins him to the ground through his temple. And then this incredible statement of the obvious in verse 21, it says, so he died. Uh, He did not survive uh, the nail through the head. And he is dead. So what happens is, then, uh, you know, Barak runs into the area. He's looking around. She sees Barak and she says, come in here. I will show you who you're looking for. He walks in. There's the general on the ground dead, prophecy fulfilled. This was the work of God because, in fact, it wasn't Deborah, but he did die at the hand of a woman named Jael, uh, who took a great chance by killing a general in the army. Now, some people wrestle, maybe you do, it certainly makes sense to wrestle with the details of this story. God gives us quite a bit of detail in it. Uh, And given modern sort of Western sensitivities, um, some people critique what she does and that it's in the Bible. Uh, She's deceptive. She lures him in. Does she commit murder? Does she murder him? Or is this some other type of killing? Uh, what the Bible def- would define, or even modern day, we would define as murder versus another type of killing. Uh, what is going on here? Well, I think I want to say something about interpreting the Bible, especially the Old Testament, that is helpful. That when, when something is reported in the Bible, it doesn't mean that it's recommended. 
when, when we read of an account of something that happens in the Old Testament, we are not to instantaneously presume that that is the will of God, that God's behind that, that God did that, or something like that. Here's an example. David had multiple wives. That's a report in the Old Testament. That's not a recommendation. That, that's not allowed. It's just reported to us. And uh, so we need to be able to differentiate what the Bible tells us happened from what God endorses. Now, in this case, God endorses it. Uh, because in the next chapter, in the Song of Deborah and Barak, we're going to read the phrase, J.L., most blessed of women. So she is honored for what she does. After all, isn't that what Deborah prophesied? The glory will go to a woman. She's honored for what she has done. Um, and, and I think there's a few reasons for that. I think we have to go back to the beginning and remember what's going on here. That Jabin, the king of Canaan, and Sisera, his right-hand man, his general in the army, treated the Israelites cruelly. They oppressed them cruelly for 20 years. They were not nice people. They were enemies of God. They were enemies of God's people. And it was torturous the way they treated the people of God. So he is an enemy of God who has done harm to the people of God. And while she's not a soldier you know, in the battle, this is the outskirts of a battle. A battle's going on. The, his entire army is dead at this point. There's no survivors. He's the last survivor. So though she's not a qualified soldier killing in war, uh, she is uh, certainly on the edge of a war. And this would be a kind of killing that would have to do with the battle, no doubt. Uh, also, I would say is that she is honored because she has killed an evil person who has done great harm to God's people. Uh, think back, you know, earlier. Can you remember? If, if you're if you're really young, you may not. But uh, if you'll remember back when our country was hunting down Osama bin Laden, and I remember when he was when the news came out that he was killed, that U.S. Special Forces had found him in a hiding in a house, uh, and they had executed him. And those who executed him were, were viewed as heroes. Why were they viewed as, why is it heroic to kill? Well, because in this circumstance, uh, he was a very evil man who had orchestrated the killing of many people in our country. So he was an evil man who was responsible for the deaths of many uh, and was, was, you know, desiring to kill more, obviously. And so the killing of Osama bin Laden was an act of justice. It was an act of justice. The killing of this enemy of God who killed the people, you know, who uh, oppressed the people of God is an act of justice. So that's why I believe she's honored. Uh, but secondly, just because something happens in the Old Testament, uh, a report is not a recommendation. I think it's helpful to remember that. Okay, how do we apply this? <laughs> well, how do we apply this? Uh, keep your eyes open when you go camping with someone you don't know too well, I suppose. Um, how do we apply it? Well, let's look at the cycle again. Can we put the cycle up one more time? Here's something. I want to make an, I want to make an application from the book itself, how it's written, and then I want to make an application from this text that we just read. But the, the application from the book in how it's written, chapter 2, we get this cycle, and then it's repeated. We've read it. This is, this is the third time we've been through it, and we're going to go through it some more. So 
it's, it's given to us again and again and again. When God repeats something over to us multiple times, he didn't have to do this, right? He could have said, here's the cycle, chapter two. Let me tell you about Othniel. And then Othniel goes through the cycle, and then we go on. We get Samson, because we need a good story for children's ministry, and then we go on in the end of the book, and we're done. So God could have written the book that way, but that's not how he writes the book. He tells us the cycle, and then he illustrates it historically time and time and time again. He's repeating something to us because it's a warning. It's a warning that we all live on this cycle. We all live somewhere in that circle. It's a continuum that all of us live in, and he warns us. He's repeating it as a warning. God repeats this so that we will get it and respond. God repeats so that we will repent. God repeats so that we will repent. Israel falls into sin and idolatry. That's the challenge for all of us, to look to the idols of the age around us. Uh, And what we find out from all these occasions is that the idols never provide the freedom. They promise freedom. They promise life. They promise security and joy and meaning and pleasure and, and, and life. But what they always do is oppress. They always oppress. The person who runs to success and builds their life around success finds himself trapped and ensnared and oppressed by the drive for success to never reach enough. The person who, you know... um, is pursuing whatever it could be, health or drugs or alcohol or a certain relationship or sex or freedom, whatever it is they're pursuing, it will never deliver as promised. It's always oppressive. And so he reminds us to us time and time again, because you go, wow, they really got, that's really bad what happened to them. They were treated cruelly for 20 years as a wake-up call so that they would cry out to God to rescue them. Maybe I don't want to go down that pathway. Maybe I want to go to school on their example and learn from their suffering. Yeah, that would be the right way to read the passage. Paul does the same thing. In, in Philippians, Paul says this, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me. I, I, this is not a trouble to tell you again. I told you in person something. I'm writing it in this letter. I'm now repeating it in the same letter. It's fine for me to tell you over and over and over again, time and time again, these truths. It's okay. And he says, it's no trouble to me and it's safe for you. God is giving us a warning to bring us to a place of safety so that we don't do what Israel does. The problem with Israel is they forgot their own story. So they serve the Lord, they're brought into the land, but once they get there, they fall into idolatry because they forgot their own story, what God had done for them as a people. They forget, we find out earlier in the book, it says that, that they forgot that God called Abraham. Generations before them, God called a man named Abraham and said, I'm going to make a people out of you, a nation. I'm going to give you a land. And the reason I'm going to do all that is so that the the blessing, my blessing can come to the whole world, to the nations through you. So he says, I'm going to make a people. I'm going, to, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you. He promises to do these great things. Why? So that he can reach the whole world with his message of good news by demonstrating his good news in the life of these good news people, the people of Israel. But they've forgotten that. They've forgotten that when they were enslaved in Egypt, 
that God freed them from Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the earth. They were oppressed. They could not get free. And he frees them miraculously. It's the Old Testament act of salvation. It's the gospel according to the Old Testament. It is the great saving act in the whole Old Testament is freeing the people of God from Egypt. But they've forgotten. We did nothing and God freed us. How great is God? And then he takes them in and he gives them the promised land, the land of Canaan. And at this stage in their history, they are settling in the promised land. That's what they are doing. But they have forgotten why are they there? Why are they there? Why did God call Abram? I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a people so that my blessing can come to the nations through you. So rather than being a blessing to the nations, rather than being a blessing to Canaan, they say, we're just going to chase your gods. We're not going to live differently than you to, re- to reveal God to you. We're going to live like you so that the witness of God is muted and hidden and you won't see it. They've completely forgotten their mission. They've forgotten the gracious God. If God freed them from the most powerful man on earth, Pharaoh, miraculously and drowned his whole army in the Red Sea, Is God not going to provide all they need in the promised land? They forget that. They forget the gospel. They forget the character of God. They forget the faithfulness of God. And so now that they're in a new land around the Canaanites, they look around and they say, well, we kind of like your lifestyle. We're going to embrace your values, your purpose, your meaning. We want to have, we want you to define the good light for us. We're turning from God's definition of the good life, what our purpose and calling is. We want to know what you say the good life is, and we will embrace that. And to get that good life, we got to serve your God, so we'll do that. That is the exact same temptation everybody in the room faces here today. We have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been freed by his resurrection. We have encountered his Holy Spirit. We have his word, which describes our calling, that he makes us a people, the people of God, Jew and Gentile alike, the church of Jesus Christ, that we might follow him, that we might live for him in all areas of our lives, representing him as salt of the earth, the light of the world, and together, a city on a hill that can cannot be hidden. That is our purpose. And we forget all that and say, boy, I kind of like what they've got over here in the world. And so we chase their values, individualism, success, money, security in earthly, sort of human security, not in the security in God. Success for our, our children, health and wealth, all of the things, the sexual freedom and pleasure, comfort, not from God, but comfort in other things that will provide comfort, overeating, overindulgence in alcohol, indulgence in pornography, indulgence in drugs. It's, it's where can I go for some relief? Where can I find something to help the ache in my soul when all along the creator and savior of the world has given himself to us, but that's not enough. So we look at Canaan and say, what, what, do you, what do you have to offer? See, we are all on that circle, just like now. The big difference is that God's not raising up a judge for us. He raised up his own son for the grave, from the grave who sits at his right hand and rules eternally. So we turn to Jesus. So we see our hearts entangled in idolatry, and then we turn to Je- that, that, that I, those idols oppress us. They never deliver. They always trap and ensnare and oppress. And then we cry out to Christ to free us, to grant us grace to repent, to turn again to him.
We remember his purpose and his calling in our life, and we get off the cycle. We get off the cycle. In his commentary on this book, in this passage, David Beldman wrote the following. He says, as God's people, we're called to model God's intention for the world with the aim of blessing the nations. And by that, he means unbelievers. So he means foreign nations across the planet, and he means your neighbor across the street. So he means unbelievers. So we're called as the people of God to model God's intention for the world with the aim of blessing all unbelievers near and far. That is our mission That is our purpose. Our lives will become directionless and cyclical and out of control if we fail to center ourselves again and again on our creator and redeemer and his desire that the whole world flourish. Like God's people and judges, we do not need better leadership, greater effort, or better strategies. We need to stop, repent, and recenter ourselves on God. Good leaders are a blessing, A good strategy and a plan is a blessing. Uh, Faithful work is a blessing. But that's not what we really need to, to end the cycle. What we really need is to turn and see our need for God, to see his glorious grace, what he provides for us, his faithfulness, and to repent from looking elsewhere, to repent from buying into the lies and the narratives all around us, and to return to his focus, his plan for us, which is to glorify him, to love our neighbor, to be a blessing to the nations, to everyone who does not know him. Israel forgot what they're doing in the promised land, and this is a warning. He repeats, so we will repent and not forget what we're doing as the people of God here today so that we don't chase idols as they do. Let me make an application from the text, and we're done. And and I, I think this is a key in the text, and that is God uses the available. We'll look at Deborah and Jael a little bit more next week. But this account is supposed to get our attention. Because in a patriarchal culture, God is using women to save his people in military battle even. At least they're connected. They're not, they may not be in the middle of the battlefield, but they're connected to the battle. So salvation in the book of Judges has to do with rescuing God's people from oppressive rulers through battle. In the New Testament, we don't battle that way. The church is not called to take up arms. The state is given uh, the sword, but the church is not given the sword. So in the New Testament, we don't battle like this. We we have spiritual battles. We have uh, spiritual warfare. Our battles are different uh, than they were there. But in this case, in the Old Covenant, the battle is physical to save the people because Israel's a nation. Uh, The church is many nations, many people. Uh, So it continues this theme of unlikely deliverers. As we're going through Judges, what we're finding is God uses available people. He uses people that the world wouldn't expect. He uses Ehud. Remember him? He was a left-hander, which put him out, uh, you know, put him on the outside already. He may have been disabled in his right hand, potentially. Uh, He was from Benjamin, which was not the right tribe to be from. Uh, He wasn't like from Judah, which was the right tribe to be from. So we see him. He's an unlikely leader. Last, his mom, Shamgar, very unlikely, probably probably a foreigner. At least his mom was probably a foreigner. And he delivers God's people. He doesn't even have a weapon. He's got farming equipment. and He's delivering God's people with this big stick that you poke an ox with, an ox goad. Amazing. God uses unlikely people. And here he delivers God's people through a committee of three sort of judges. There's Deborah, who's the prophetess who brings the word of God. There's Barak, who is the 
sort of like the real judge in the book who is the military deliverer. And then there is uh, J.L. who just finishes the job, just gets it done when, uh, you know, he comes her way, when Sisera comes her way. So God raises up these three people, but two of the three are very unlikely. Very unlikely, but they are available. Deborah is available to God. She hears God's word, and she passes it on as a prophet. That is her calling. So she's available to God. She calls out Barak and what he's going to do. And when he asks her to go with him to the battle, she goes. She could have said, what are you talking about? Women don't go to battle. What, that, this isn't how it works. Are you going to obey God or not? What's the problem? She could have said that. She says, no, I'll go with you. She goes to Mount Tabor with him, and she gets the word of the Lord or whatever and says, now's the time. Let's go. She volunteered. She's sort of, it's out of the norm that a woman's out with all the men, you know, on the battlefield preparing for battle. But she's available. She's willing. She has a heart for God's purposes very clearly. And she, she does what God wants. Think about Jael. She sees an opportunity and she acts decisively. I mean, she didn't have time to come up with that plan. She's like, whoa, this, this is the opposing general. And she acts. She, she does something courageous. What if she kills him and the first people to come searching the tents, she doesn't know everybody's dead. What if the first people to come searching the tents are Canaanites? It's not going to go well for her. She's sitting there ho- holding a bloody hammer with a dead general and like, oh, okay, it's not going to go well. She's taking a huge risk, but she trusts God. She understands God's purpose is that those who oppress God's people should be taken care of. And she sees God's purpose. This is the land for God's people, and her purpose is tied to God's purpose, so she will do something crazy and kill a general. That, that's, she is available. She acts according to what God puts in front of her. These are not spectators. These are kingdom activists, we could say, these two women. They are not doing normal jobs uh, in their culture, but they are available and God uses them. And it calls all of us to look at this and go, wow, do I trust that God is a savior? Do I trust that God delivers like they do so that I'm available? Do I have a vision of God freeing his people like they do so that I will take a risk? Do I see God on the move saving people and moving all of history towards the day he returns and makes all things new? Am I caught up in that adventure so that I'm willing to act in uncharacteristic ways, risky ways, costly ways like these women do in this passage? Are you available? If not, what hinders your availability? Are you a spectator or are you active? I, I, I've got to read you something that I just was very challenging to me. It's in a commentary from a scholar. He, he's a seminary professor named Lawson Younger from Chicago. So he's writing about all scholarly stuff about this and what are these cities and who are these people. And then he makes this point. He says, based on what we just read, participation in the kingdom of God is praiseworthy. These people are honored. Non-participation is shameful, perhaps in some cases abominable. This is especially true when God's people lack involvement due to their self-centered, self-serving interest and apathy. Christianity 
is not a spectator sport. It requires involvement. Just as God is holy, passionate, and zealous for righteousness, he expects his people to be the same. Just as God desires that none should perish and work so great a salvation on humanity's behalf, so he wants this same desire in his people for the lost. When we choose not to participate in what he has ordained as part of the establishment of his kingdom, we become supporters of another program, a program that's not of God, a program dictated by the gods of this world. The reason that spoke to me is because we can think we're neutral, but we're not neutral. We're either building the kingdom of God or we're building the kingdom of me. Self-interest, selfishness, and the kingdom of me is idolatrous, and it is opposed to the kingdom of God. Nobody's neutral. It's not like I'm building the kingdom of God and serving him, or I'm just neutral. No, no. I'm building the kingdom of God by the grace of God, by the mercy of God, by the power of Christ, with the good news of the gospel, or I'm setting up my own kingdom, which is completely at odds with God's kingdom. It's the gods all around us. It's the gods of Frisco, the gods of Prosper, the gods of McKinney, the gods of Little Elm, the gods of the colony, the gods of Plano, wherever you live. It's the the gods of let me pursue my dream. Let me write my story. Let me be all that I can be. And, and, And the kingdom of God is if you want to find your life, lose it, Jesus said. You want to find your life, you give it away in the kingdom of God. That's meaning. That's purpose. The grace of God freeing you from yourself to lay down your life, to glorify God and love your neighbor through being faithful in just the regular activities of your life. This is the calling. Am I a spectator or a participant in the kingdom of God? It starts with making myself available and saying, Lord, I'm a mess but you're glorious. These women weren't qualified to be involved in battle in their culture for sure, but they made themselves available and they were used by you to free your people from the oppressive enemy. God, use me in the grace of God, in the relationships I have, in the relationships, in the job I have, in the neighborhood I live. Make me, make me a light to be used by you. I just want to be available. Use me, Lord. Let's pray. God, we ask today that you would work in each of us in this church fellowship, Lord, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would help us to see the enticement, the alluring ideas all around us, the worldview, the the desires, the plans, the, the narrative, the schemes all around us for meaningful existence. And we pray that we would see the false claims, the lies of the enemy, and that we would find our life in you and in you alone. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving your life for us so that we could be saved not by our works, by your work. Thank you for saving us by your work and then by grace commissioning us as believers to do good works for your glory. Show us those works. Show us the hindrances to our availability. Show us where we're on the sidelines with our time, with our finances, with our service, with our mind, with our heart. Show us where we're building an alternative kingdom, the kingdom of me, and free us to build by your grace the kingdom.
Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.